simple and clear uh, that uh, we um, too often complicated with uh, sinful and confused minds. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would draw near and uh, clear the fog. Uh, and also, uh, Lord, we pray that you would, as we learn to uh, set on fire, uh, motivate us, Lord, to be very clear about obeying your word. Uh, we do ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I suspect you're in the spot. I don't know if you know this song. Uh, it goes like this. I love to have a beer with Duncan. I love to have a beer with Dunk. We drink in moderation, and we never, ever get rolling drunk. We drink at the town and country where the atmosphere is great. I love to have a beer with Duncan because Duncan's my mate. Um, sounds pretty harmless to some degree, doesn't it? Uh, the next few verses, though, um, have roughly the same lyrics. He's pretty inventive. Uh, he goes on to say he has a beer with Colin, and then Kevin, then Patrick, then Robert, then Bob, and then Duncan again. And you must remember, really, the common phrase of the song. It says something like, uh, we drink in moderation. And you've got to ask the question after seven beers, um, is it still moderation? And then it goes on to say, and we never, ever, ever get rolling drunk. Um, isn't that what every drunk says? Um, well, today we're looking at Ephesians 5 and verses uh, 18 to 21. Verse 18 starts off with what is quite blunt and simple. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does all of this mean? Well, the first uh, thing and the obvious thing is we should not lose control of our reason or senses. And uh, you know the context of uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 18. We've been studying it. We've been getting contrasts, haven't we? Um, we've been told to walk in true love, but not in lust. Uh, we've had the contrast of walking in light and not in darkness. And then we've been asked to walk or commanded to walk in wisdom and not in folly. Um, in light of this, how do you walk in wisdom? Well, uh, he starts off by saying, uh, do not be drunk with wine. Uh, and most commentators are uh, basically reminding us that it's, this letter was written in a historic context, was written to a people in Ephesus, and we need to understand something of the culture of Ephesus, and in the culture of Ephesus was the god of Dionysus. And uh, if you follow Dionysus, one of your practices on your days of worship was to drink a fair amount of alcohol with a view to being inspired, with a view to uh, having, if you like, a freeing experience. You wanted to be freed from the limitations of your mind. You wanted to explore, explore new mental frontiers. And as you uh, sought to go uh, outside your mind, well, alcohol was the best help. Uh, today, um, Eastern religions uh, don't use alcohol, but they employ meditation. Uh, they assume, basically, that you and I are inherently good. There's something good about us. Um, and if a person meditates and goes and looks for their inner self, 
uh, they're going to find um, something good there and eventually they'll find peace and tranquility. Uh, what can go wrong? Uh, Eastern meditation, uh, though it does not use alcohol, repeats mantras and uh, common <coughs> phrases and then silence and the idea is if you just continually do that you work yourself into some kind of trance that transcends the mind and it goes to some form of spiritual freedom. Uh, and we must ask how does a depraved mind, how does a fallen heart and an interior take you to heaven or nirvana or to some place of peace? Uh, usually it's going to do damage. Uh, but commentators don't say it was just a religion. They say it was a general fad in society. Uh, people would drink and it was not uncommon to get drunk in Greek or Roman or Middle Eastern culture of the day. And so Paul is warning Christians not just in a religious sense, he's warning them in a cultural sense and he's saying don't follow the world's culture. Uh, don't uh, celebrate the fact that you lost total control of your mind and your senses. Um, uh, and we have to say that too in itself uh, is something we can say to our culture. It certainly is a fad here. Uh, certainly it was for Duncan. Um, now, now we know from just observation when people do get drunk and when they do suspend all reason, uh, it's usually followed by uncontrolled behavior. Uh, voices are much louder than they normally would be. Um, the behavior becomes reckless and uncontrolled and often you'll end up with a bar brawl or you end up usually with sexual sin. Interestingly, in verse 18, Paul confirms this and agrees with this. He uses a very quaint phrase, really. Um, and he says that drunkenness uh, with it brings dissipation. In other words, uh, there's a loss of self-awareness. Uh, there's a heightened risk of indulging ourselves. There's a risk of being reckless, uncontrolled, lewd, rowdy, and even indulging ourselves in shameless acts. And this is not just Paul. We know in the Old Testament, if you go to the Old Testament, this is repeated over and over again. Proverbs 23, for instance, and verse 29, Solomon says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Um, you really don't even know where the bruises came from. You don't know what happened last night, is what Solomon is saying. And then in Proverbs 20, he says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Uh, so uh, in the good old days, I don't know if you remember, when you were driving, uh, we too had drink driving rules, and if the police picked you up, uh, the test was not to blow into a pipe. It was not to count ten into a little computerized uh, device. What they did was they asked you to get out of the car and they asked you to walk a straight line. And if you could walk the straight line, uh, well, you passed. And uh, they knew that if you were drunk, uh, well, you could not walk a straight line. What 
it meant was that you were under the influence, you were under the control of alcohol. And so, just as you can detect a drunk by their walk, uh, so too you can detect a Christian uh, by the way they walk, by the way they live. Um, there are only two ways to walk or live, is Paul's argument, isn't it? It's either light or darkness. It's either in love or in lust. It's either foolish or wise. Um, how you live matters. People are looking at your life. They might not read the Bible, but they're watching you. And they're watching you and they're seeing what controls you. What is the big driver in your life? Um, now the passage is not only speaking about what controls you, it's also speaking about what fills you and what satisfies you. Where do you get your greatest kicks? And the two are pretty linked because usually what satisfies you and gives you the greatest buzz is going to be the thing that drives you anyway. The person without Christ uh, in general has an emptiness and they need a void that needs to be filled. They have a void that needs to be filled. And instead of turning to Christ, what do they do? They generally turn to other things. And so they find other things to give them their greatest buzz in life. And if you have a non-Christian friend at work, or if you have a non-Christian friend in the neighborhood, you will see it'll be something as small as their garden. They'll make sure there's not a single weed. They'll make sure every blade of grass is exactly the same length and everything is trimmed and cropped at exactly the same uh, level that it's supposed to be. So it's no surprise really to find that men and women in this day fill up on alcohol or something else uh, to satisfy. But when you come to this verse, um, some people have made a big deal of wine and they only talk about wine as if it cannot be anything else. Uh, I think it's broader. I don't think you're supposed to think of alcohol alone. Certainly alcohol is important. We live in a world where it's important to talk about alcohol. It's important to talk about drugs, whether they be of the illegal variety or whether they be of the legal, prescri prescribed variety. Um, smoking as well is a stress reliever. Uh, we're under stress, we find that we need something that satisfies and relieves the stress and uh, for some it's smoking. In the last month in Australia, 90,000 people came forward and declared that they're addicted to vaping. Uh, basically, they know it's probably going to be illegal or if it's not illegal already. I barely even know what vaping is, I'm sorry to say. I can't even explain it to you. But uh, what it does say is for some they get satisfied every time they vape. Uh, the pull on them is so strong they must vape. Uh, they will control certain aspects of their day so that they do have time for vaping. Um, and they'll never be satisfied unless there is a sufficient supply of vapes. Others possibly need social media. Uh, some might need food or TV. Um, entertainments or distractions bind uh, or enslave uh, uh, many. And the question is, who controls you? Um, so when Paul is saying don't be drunk, he's saying don't be under the influence. 
Uh, don't be under the influence of alcohol or anything else. Uh, he, he's saying don't find your satisfaction in alcohol or anything else. Um, he's saying to the Christian, if you want to know who should be your guiding influence, well, if you have been born again, uh, you will find God. The Lord Jesus Christ is your controlling influence. Yeah, you'll be not just controlled by him, but communion with him will fill you and it will be your greatest treat. Now MacArthur, John MacArthur and Peter Masters, they argue that Christians should never drink. And perhaps this passage is saying that. Um, and then if they don't say Christians should never drink, they say ministers should never drink. They argue that wines in Paul's day were of three different groups. One was very strong and usually a mixed wine. Uh, the second was uh, a light alcohol wine, which was the everyday wine, about 3 to 4% alcohol. And then the third was a non-alcoholic variety. And uh, what they say basically is that it was... Uh, Really, the common wine that people drank was uh, three to five percent, and they could get drunk, but uh, generally the culture was not uh, that people got drunk. And then they come to our culture and compare it with our culture, and they say generally we're drinking strong drinks or mixed drinks because the percentage of alcohol is around 14 percent and higher. And they said so because our wines are nothing like the others, well, Christians should not drink these 14% wines at all unless they mix it with something and bring it down uh, to a highly diluted level. Uh, they go further, they say if you're a minister, well you should not drink at all because kings and priests and Nazarites were told in the Old Testament to never let wine even touch their lips. So the question is should Christians drink or not? Uh, and if you uh, read your scriptures, you know Christians are described as kings and priests, uh, well they should not drink. Well, uh, come to Q&A tonight if you've got more questions on it, and I do sympathise to some degree with MacArthur and Masters, but clearly the Ephesians were drinking, and clearly Paul is writing to people who have drunk, and become drunk, and he's saying stop being controlled by alcohol, stop getting drunk with wine. And he could have said, stop drinking altogether. He could have said, you should never have a glass of wine in your house. Uh, but instead he says, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Mount Lloyd-Jones, he says this, he says, wine is not a stimulant, it's a depressant. Go to any pharmacology textbook, if you're a medical doctor, and you'll find the textbook will classify wine as a depressant. Uh, he says it depresses the highest part of your brain. The center that controls uh, your self-control, your wisdom, your understanding, your discrimination, your judgment. Uh, the thing that gives you balance in life. That component of the brain that allows you to assess everything, well, that's the area that wine goes to and depresses and suppresses. It's the center that makes man behave his best, he says. 
And he says that's exactly the component of the brain that alcohol dulls and weakens. He then goes on to say, if you could classify the Holy Spirit into a pharmacology book, he said you'd have to classify it as a stimulant. Classify him as a stimulant. He stimulates, he enlightens, he sharpens every faculty of mind, the mind, the intellect, the heart and the will. You see, it's a contrast Paul's doing, isn't it? It's loss of control uh, versus an enhanced control. And in the first point he's making the point we must have control of our senses. In the second place, he says we should be enlightened and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And once again our verse, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And once again these words, be filled with the Holy Spirit, have been hijacked. Um, and they've been hijacked to mean what the Apostle Paul could never have ever meant. Um, some are saying, Paul here is commanding Christians to go and seek a second blessing. Um, they expect uh, someone has been converted, someone has been regenerated, someone has become a Christian, uh, but now they want to go to another level, a higher level of holiness, a higher level of godliness. And so they pray that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and they will reach that higher level. And, and this new level of elite Christians these ones who have received the second blessings, the ones who have been filled. Well, they also have special gifts that accompany these blessings. And these extra gifts that come along with them uh, might be speaking in tongues. Uh, it could be other signs like healing. And then it's degenerated really into a whole range of gifts like laughing and falling down and barking and uh, other extreme signs. Um, and they say, if you come to this verse, it's so obvious. Um, just as we lose control of our mind and our senses when we drink wine, uh, so too Paul is expecting us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, be drunk with the Holy Spirit and lose control of our minds and senses and reach this higher ecstatic um, out-of-mind experience. Folks, clearly this is not what Paul is teaching. Uh, Paul is not making a comparison. He's not saying just as you were drunk, so be drunk with the Spirit. He's not saying that at all. He's doing, he's doing the opposite. He's making a contrast. Uh, he's already made three contrasts. He's saying, don't confuse lust with love. He's saying, not fornication, but agape love. He said, don't live according to darkness, but live according to light. Don't live like a fool, but live wisely. And now we get another contrast. Rather than being drunk and losing control, be filled with the Spirit with an enhanced uh, and an enlightened control. The contrast could not be more extreme. And so the reader has to make this contrast, don't they? Uncontrolled behavior. Uh, versus enhanced self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, being filled with the Spirit, as Lloyd-Jones says, enhances wisdom. It enhances understanding. It enhances discrimination, judgment, balance. And your power to assess things improve. 
Now being filled with the Spirit doesn't make you perfect, no. But it heightens the faculties you have. Uh, just on Wednesday we looked at the conscience. Uh, everyone has a conscience. And from the fall everyone's conscience is flawed or marred by sin. Uh, but once a person is converted, the conscience is enlightened, uh, sharpened, it's fired up and it starts to work. The Apostle Paul, for instance, when he was not a Christian, had, he was thoroughly aware of the Ten Commandments. But he was coveting. He wanted other people's things. Whatever other people had, he says, I should have the same. Um, and he didn't see that as sin. But, but once he becomes a Christian, he's aware, the same words that he was reading, coveting, he's aware now that he was a covetous person. And that he should not be watching everybody else and looking for whatever they own and trying to own or be or whatever, what other people have. He was convicted of his sin and he turned from it. Um, being filled with the Spirit stimulates our conscience. It enlightens and sharpens our consciences. Uh, before Jesus uh, ascended, before he went to the cross and then eventually ascended, he promised his disciples he would send the Spirit. And the Spirit would come and live in us. And one of the functions of the Spirit was not just for us, but for the whole world. He would provoke our consciences. He would uh, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now another error Christians uh, confuse uh, when they talk about the filling of the Spirit is they somehow think if I need to be filled with the Spirit, I was sometimes empty of the Spirit, and then other times I was filled with the Spirit. And so my life as a Christian goes from being empty and then filled and then empty and then filled and then empty. And it's this constant up and down. Uh, and so I've got to keep praying that I'll be filled, because so often I just feel like I'm empty. Um, and there are days when the Spirit has filled me and it's happy days. Everything seems to be upward and onward. But then there's other times it seems like the Spirit has gone on a holiday and I'm just down there in a trough. Um, this is opposite to Jesus' language about the Holy Spirit. In John 14, before he goes to the cross, this is what he says, I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is language of permanence. Um, the next verse says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So we have to take this into mind when we're trying to understand what it means when we say to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so to understand what does being filled with the Holy Spirit is, you go back to the text. And what does the text tell us? Well, firstly, the text tells us it's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not asking you to pray. It's a command to you to exercise Self-control with drinking, uh, you're not to be drunk. And in the same way as you're commanded not to be drunk, 
you're also commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something you must do. And I say this reverently, it's not something you pray for and wait for God to do. Um, there's the let go and let God movement. And their thinking is this, if God really wants me to obey, I just need to relax and let go. And if I let go, well, God needs to somehow energize me and get me going to do whatever he wants me to do. Otherwise, he can't actually want me to do it. And it relates usually to those positive acts. You see, we can not do something. If I tell you don't lie, yes, you can get some progress there by just keeping your mouth closed. Um, but if I said positively to you to speak the truth, to share the gospel, um, well, that's a bit more difficult, isn't it? Uh, and here, what Paul is saying is you are responsible. You have been commanded, it's an authoritative command, be filled with the Spirit and God expects you to obey it now. Um, the next thing we find about this command it's in the present and it's in the continuous tense. In other words, it's not something you did in the past once. It's something you will continually do over and over again whilst ever you are alive as a Christian. We are to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. It's a pattern of life. It's a walk that Paul is speaking about. When God awakens us by a spirit, he's already made us alive. And then he comes to dwell with us permanently. Jesus has already confirmed that to us. And once we are alive, and once the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then we must get up and get on and continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Our joy and satisfaction must come through the Holy Spirit. It comes in Jesus, but through the Holy Spirit. We must be enlightened by Him. We must be controlled by Him. Uh, lastly, the words, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is not in the active voice. It's surprisingly, it's actually in the passive voice. And Stotts, he, he says, you could possibly say this. He says, let the Holy Spirit fill you. In other words, he's saying, you need to be open to the influence of the Holy Spirit. You need to cooperate with the influence of the Holy Spirit. The command expects you to remove every hindrance uh, that keeps you being influenced by the Holy Spirit. If something is taking you away from the influence of the Spirit, get rid of it. Uh, you should turn away from activities that grieve the Spirit. Uh, you should enter into activities where the Spirit operates and works. Um, he gives no technique on how to do it. Uh, he, he does not tell you every single activity that grieves the Spirit, nor does he tell you every single activity that, where the Spirit influences us. But he does get onto it later with some of the places where the Holy Spirit actively works. Uh, but if you do want to pray, your prayer should be that you would be obedient, uh, that you would remove hindrances, 
from the influence of the Holy Spirit, that you would be someone who actually has a desire for the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so the second thing we pick up is we should be enlightened and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And now the third thing, and probably what you're trying to get your hand around is how does how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? And, and I'll put it to you this way in the third point, being filled with the Spirit comes in a local church. Now the obvious question is, why do I feel dry and empty some days? Why do I feel so distant from God? Uh, is it because the Holy Spirit has left me to some degree? Um, why do we at some times feel so full of joy and so much at peace with God? Why do my feelings or my experience suggest so often that I am not filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, in the first place, if you're asking these questions, the bulk of your questions have a lot to do with your feelings and your experience. It's not about what Jesus has promised or whether Jesus has kept his promise. Uh, those two things are undoubted. Uh, we know that Jesus has sent his Spirit to regenerate sinners. Uh, we know that he dwells with them after that permanently. Uh, and he does that perfectly. But if in our remaining sin we choose uh, to fill up on things of this world, if we choose to satisfy ourselves uh, with the influence of alcohol or drugs or work or even family, uh, well, our feelings of joy and assurance are going to be shaken. They're going to be up and down like a yo-yo. Our fellowship and communion with Christ is going to be hindered. We are not going to be in fellowship with Christ. We're going to be, in a sense, almost operating on our own. Um, it never changes what God has promised, but it does affect our walk in this world. It does diminish our joy. It does shake our assurance. Now, now there's no doubt if I went to a party, uh, if I went to a party and drank wine, I would be merry. The Bible says it. A feast and wine makes the heart merry. But, but this is not solid and lasting. It really just makes me thirsty for more. If I have a big win in business, it is a buzz. If I make a lot of money, there is some sense of joy and satisfaction about it. Uh, but it doesn't make you satisfied. You usually are hungry for more. Uh, drugs will take away the stress. Other drugs will give you sleep. Uh, some will even give you a high. Uh, but you'll need more. Any substitute for the Holy Spirit um, will only enslave you eventually. It will only cause you to want more and more. And so Paul, very simply, basically gives us the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when you read this word, these words, be filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to ask yourselves, what am I thinking? Am I thinking it's something that I have to do on my own? Or is it something in the context of the church? And clearly, Ephesians 5 is in the context of the church. He started off in chapter 4, started off even earlier. God's great plan is the church. Um, and so the idea that I get filled 
with the Spirit by going into a closet, closing the closet and shutting my eyes and pressing down really hard on my eye and concentrating heavily and hoping that the Holy Spirit will come and fill me in the closet is not in mind here at all. Uh, the idea is being filled with the Spirit happens within a community. Um, the command is not in the singular. The command is in the plural. And this should not surprise you really because everything we've been reading has been in the plural. In other words, it's not just for you individually, it's for yous. It's for all of us. Um, in the Old Testament, if you were thinking, where do I find the filling of the Holy Spirit? You would have to go back to the days of the tabernacle or the temple. Solomon, for instance, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, we read, he finished building the temple and the Holy Spirit came and filled the temple. From verse 1 of Second Chronicles. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. You see, God brought his people together out of Egypt. He brought them together to dwell with them and for them to dwell with him and for them to worship. Very soon after they come out, he commands them to build a tabernacle. And they build a tabernacle and believe it or not, exactly the same thing that happened in the tabernacle was repeated in the temple. Fire came down. And the presence of the Lord came in. And the community experience in the temple was that God came and filled the church or filled the temple of God. And it reminds us that this is actually how God views the New Testament church. He calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, Jesus confirmed the same thing. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name. When you come together as a church, I am there in the midst of them. And so to be filled with the Spirit, sadly to inform you, is connected to coming to church. To regularly and continuously be filled with the Spirit involves coming to church regularly. And continuously, if you want to know the special presence of Christ, you will know it when the church gathers. Um, and it sort of explains the rest, doesn't it? Verses 19 to 21. Notice the activities that are associated with being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. It's not something you do in a closet. You're doing it with one another. You're singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You're giving thanks always for all things. And then you're submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. You're actually saying, I like to do something, but I won't do it because I'm doing it, doing the opposite thing that I like for someone else. And to reinforce this, if you go to the parallel chapter of Ephesians 5, you'll find the parallel chapter in Colossians. And Colossians says exactly the same thing. Instead of saying you need to be filled with the Spirit, he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see, they're parallel passages, aren't they? Speaking of exactly the same thing. He's connecting the ministry of the word and the filling of the spirit. He is connecting being filled with the spirit with Christ ruling in our hearts. He's basically connecting not just the ministry of the word, but the singing of psalms to one another. Uh, submitting to one another with Christ dwelling in us richly. Folks, surely Colossians and Ephesians are speaking of church life. They're speaking of, in fact, the church service, what you're doing right now. Surely being filled with the Holy Spirit involves life in a local church that is submitted to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is so condescending that he comes and even dwells with sinners like us. And we pray that he would continue to work with us even as we not just hear the word but as we come to the Lord's Supper. And we ask again, uh, please help us, Lord, to be enlightened in our hearts uh, that we might understand uh, your word and your requirement of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us.